0: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org.
1: Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Tiffany Roberts, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and your chair for this evening's program. We also want to welcome our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us on the website at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now, for tonight's program, Curtailing Suburban Sprawl. Faced with an increasing population and the need to cut greenhouse gas emissions, the state has begun to look at innovative ways to curtail suburban sprawl. One such way has been through the passage of SB 375, the nation's first law to control greenhouse gas emissions through the promotion of sustainable communities. Tonight, we've gathered a group of experts that will speak about SB 375. Our panelists include Laura Hall, who will serve as our moderator tonight. Laura is an urban designer with Hall Amanana. Ted Dropboom. Ted is a planner with the Joint Policy Commission. And Paul Campos from the Home Builders Association of Northern California. At this time, I would like to turn it over to tonight's moderator, Laura Hall.
0: Thank you, Tiffany. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm going to start this off by just uh, mentioning three points to get us all thinking about this topic of sprawl and climate change and how they relate, and then I will uh, address some questions to the panelists, and towards the end, we'll open it up to the audience for questions, so be thinking about your questions and how you can make them very succinct. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is what is sprawl. A lot of people, ref- there's sort of two <clears throat> concepts that we throw out there. One is just sort of uh, expanding growth forever and ever. The other way that urbanists use the term sprawl is uh, it's about the pattern of development. So the pattern of sprawl is monoculture. It's not diverse. It's not mixed. It's not connected. It is all Except by the car. That, that defines what sprawl is. So it's not so much about how much, but it's that pattern. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, the second thing related to climate change, if 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from cars and light trucks, if we design development that is based a lot on the car, uh, that is where that connection lies, the average number of car trips per household for sprawl if you can guess, it's uh, about nine and a half car trips per household per day. That is average. You can see the greenhouse gas emission connection there. For urbanism, you get it down: walkable urbanism, transit ready urbanism, about five to seven. So just there, you can see the big difference. The other thing that we talk a lot about a lot about in creating places that are walkable it often gets translated into the idea that it's just about density and it is not just about density because we all know places that are very dense that people are afraid to walk in Um, it's about diversity it's about connection it's about a lot of different types of building types Um, it's about destination it's about the size of the the block all these things relate to each other to make it a place that is walkable. They, there's some compact element of that, but it's not all about density. So just hold those three things as we move forward. Um, I am going to direct a question now in that in light of these issues to, uh, back to Ted Drottboom, who is the Joint Policy Director of the Association of Bay Area Governments, or we could say ABAG, and um, who worked on SB 375, and ask you, Ted, what... Um you believe SB three seventy five, which is often called the anti sprawl bill, is intended to do.
2: Thank you, Laura. First first of all, just in, in deference to all the people that pay my salary, I actually work for ABAG, for MTC, for B C D C and BAAQMD, <laughs> all of which are regional agencies having some jurisdiction over the nine Bay Area counties. Uh, I told Tiffany uh, earlier this afternoon that when I grow up, I have, have a life objective of working for all the letters of the alphabet, just <laughs> not the ones that I'm working now. I typically describe SB 375 in terms of, of what I refer to as, as Ted's Zoo. Because it has a characteristics like a lot of lot of animals, uh, it's a bit like a camel, which everybody knows is a horse designed by a committee. Uh, it is a very complex bill. It is it is about 70 pages long. Uh, it is clearly the result of a lot of political compromise in Sacramento, and occasionally it starts off on paths that have no ending ideas are presented in the bill, but there's no logical conclusion, or there are internal contradictions in the bill. That's important to understand going forward. SB 375 is also a lot like the elephant in the famous Indian fable about the six blind men and the elephant. You know that one blind man touches the elephant's Uh, hooves and says, well, an elephant's an awful lot like a tree. Another one touches its ears and says, an elephant is awful like a fan. It goes on and on. What SB 375 is and what it does is very dependent upon your take on it, your perception, where you come from in looking at the bill. As we proceed through the night, I will also suggest to you that SB 375 has a great potential of becoming a paper tiger. Uh, a bill that that involves all of us spending a lot of time and effort but in the end having no real effect. And it is possible to meet the letter of the law in SB 375 and accomplish absolutely nothing. It is possible. We hope in the Bay Area not to do that. Now with that sort of caveat introduction, let's talk about what's in the core of SB 375. And at the core of SB 375 is something called the Sustainable Community Strategy. The Sustainable Community Strategy is not well-defined in the bill. It's a bulleted list of a number of qualities it has to have in essence what it is is an integrated land use and transportation strategy for each of the major metropolitan regions in california and the bill specifically identifies eighteen regions four are of particular importance those are the four major metropolitan areas san diego Uh, the Los Angeles metropolitan area, the so-called SCAG region, Southern California Association Governments region, which is six counties in Southern California, Uh, the Sacramento-centered region, and the nine-county Bay Area, centered around the cities of San Jose, San Francisco, and, and Oakland. Each of those regions will be required to prepare a sustainable community strategy. And the sustainable community strategy has two core purposes, the first of which is frequently forgotten in descriptions of the bill. Sustainable community strategy must accommodate all the housing demand generated by growth in its region. So whether that a growth occurs through job growth, so-called natural increase, births exceeding death, or migration for whatever reason, the region must prepare a plan which accommodates all that housing growth and accommodates it for all segments, all economic segments of the population. That is significant for the Bay Area because we have been, over the past several decades, exporting some of our housing demand into surrounding regions. uh, Largely because of of housing affordability issues, uh, some in, in part because of housing taste issues and the inability to find housing meeting needs within the Bay Area. We will now have to plan to accommodate all our population growth within the nine county Bay Areas. We will also need to prepare a preferred land use pattern, which when integrated with the transportation network and with transportation measures and policies, serves to reduce greenhouse emissions from automobiles and light trucks. And that's important. The only greenhouse gases which SB 375 cares about are those generated by automobiles and light trucks. Now, the principal mechanism which most people have identified for SB 375 accomplishing that purpose is in fact concentrated, focused, smart growth redirecting where growth occurs so that it becomes uh, more possible to take transit for commuting or more possible to achieve accessibility via proximity as opposed to having to drive or take multiple trips to serve one's daily needs. It is also possible to achieve some of those greenhouse reductions through transportation measures and policies and those are important one of the most effective ways of reducing greenhouse gases from, from cars and light trucks is to bring the speed limit down to 55 miles per hour that will do it re, will re, result in a reduction in a relatively rapid period of time those things are on the table as well We will be given in September of 2010 by the California Air Resources Board two targets to meet for for automobiles and light trucks. One target will be for the year 2020, which is the same year that is governed by uh, AB32, the the omnibus uh, California Global Warming Act, and another target for the year 2035 we will be preparing a sustainable community strategy to be included in our regional transportation plan, which will be published in the year 2013. So we have a little bit of time to, in fact, work on this in this region. Uh, We will be the last major region in California to do a sustainable community strategy, simply because we just published our regional transportation plan regional transportation plans are published on a four-year cycle and our cycle does not come due until 2013 and the sustainable community strategy has to be included in that plan so that's what SB 375 is about in its essence there's a lot of details which we might get in as we as we proceed through the evening
0: thank you Ted Um, we're going to move on to uh, uh, have Paul follow up on that but before we do that, I just wanted to tag off something that Ted had mentioned, which is there's a lot of legislation, a lot of policy discussion and issues, and we all I want you to hold in mind as you're listening to this that for for the last few decades, we've had general plans that throughout California that have all said our policy is to create walkable communities. Uh, protect the environment, make places safe uh, for bicyclists, et cetera. So we want to think about how to move this forward in a way that will actually result in walkable places. I'm going to now push this question over to Paul Campos, Vice President and General Counsel of the Northern California Home Builders Association. Um, Paul, the Home Builders Association played an important role in this legislation. What are some of its most important aspects from a practical standpoint, and maybe also talk about how it relates to the current economy for
3: development. Sure. <clears throat> thank you, and thank you for having me here. Um, uh, as Ted said, SB 375 is a very complex and long bill, and, and one could spend hours and hours and even probably a whole class on going through its, its particulars. Um, but staying sort of at the, at the more general level um, and focusing on some of the practical challenges that the Bay Area and other regions will face in implementing it, um, I think one needs to look um, at attitudes about housing generally um, here in the Bay Area and um, ask ourselves whether uh, going forward um, with climate change reduction being the principal, uh, if not one uh, first among equals, as far as land use and transportation policy and where we put housing. Um, is, the, is the past sustainable in terms of how uh, regulators, how cities and counties, how builders, how environmentalists, how neighborhood groups, how uh, business groups think of housing Is that sustainable going forward? And I would argue that it's not, and that if you look at um, how housing is typically viewed in the Bay Area over the last 20 or 30 years, it is almost as a necessary evil. It is something to be controlled, mitigated, um, do no harm, um, and it's not looked at as something that stimulates new communities or creates new communities or is a community benefit in most places in the Bay Area. There are obviously exceptions, but that's sort of the general rule. There's a basic hostility uh, to new housing of all kinds, not just quote-unquote sprawl, but uh, if you try to entitle a, an infill development project just about anywhere in the Bay Area, you'll run into just as many problems, whether it be from neighbors or uh, um, regulators or bankers, you name it. So I think if we're going to look to housing and the location of housing to be something that really helps California reduce its greenhouse gas emissions from vehicle miles traveled, housing is going to have to be looked at uh, as something that um, society and our state and local government um, views as important and beneficial um, merely by virtue of it being built in a certain place and in a certain way. Um, and, and there you get into an idea of of trade-offs and priorities and balances because um, there is no amount of infrastructure money, there's no amount of tax revenue that a development can generate no, no matter how beautifully it's designed that is going to appease a significant number of of local people in the community and their elected officials. And so um, when you again I go back to, to the current practice and uh, which has been the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, in order to get a project approved, whether it's a suburban sprawl or um, here in San Francisco, the list of demands that um, the community and, and regulators' place on the project is enormous, whether it be impact fees, um, CEQA process and regulations, potential initiative and referenda, demands to reduce the project for density's sake, um, reciting because of a neighbor's concern about view. Um, all of these things add tremendously to the cost and difficulty of building even the best infill projects, and um, I think we we sort of were living all of us in a bit of a, a dreamland for the last decade or fifteen years because the market would sustain all of those costs, um, and they were all passed on to the ultimate home buyer. Uh, in the form of astronomical prices. So, we had this um, ter- terrible storm of, of very low interest rates and, and easy money chasing uh, a lot, very few units in the Bay Area. And the result was a huge buildup in prices that was unsustainable. Um, but for a while, it was sustained, um, and all the regulatory costs and the process um, was sustained because people. Kept buying, and they could get the, down, the, the loan with no money down and no income verification. That's no longer the case. And so um, coming back to that original premise about sustainability of the, of the regulatory process that we, we put housing through in the Bay Area, um, going forward, I don't see housing being able to support the level of amenities, fees, Exactions and, and other demands that we are so used to and accustomed to um, in the Bay Area. Um, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon because uh, if you look at, at what has happened to the price of existing housing in the Bay Area, it's almost got cut in half. And now that is the competition for new housing. And the median price of an existing house in the Bay Area is about $300,000 now. Um, There are some cities where about $150,000 per unit is imposed in fees alone. And so by the time you pay your fees and construct your house, you're already blown past the $300,000 that your customer can buy a nice existing home for. So the market is now... Completely recalibrated, um, but I don't think that it has has hit um, most of us um, that that's going to cause a recalibration of how we regulate housing and how we look at it, um, and that if we're serious about housing location and design being a fundamental uh, strategy for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and that it has to be done regionally and locally, um, we are going to have to reevaluate um, some of the things that we ask of housing, some of the regula- regulations we impose on housing, the exactions, and those are all very difficult things because none of them are without a very powerful constituency or desire, whether it's an affordable housing fee, a park fee, a traffic fee, uh, a reduction in density to... Um, uh, to assuage uh, the neighbors, none of these things are, are easy, uh, which is why they 've become so institutionalized in our housing approval process. Uh, but I would submit that given um, what I think is a is a relatively permanent or long term recalibration in the economics of housing in California, um, I think there's going to be a significant conflict between our traditional uh... housing policy and delivery system with those economics
0: thank you paul i'm gonna have a follow-up question with you but before i do we're going to pause for a moment to remind our listening audience that you are listening to a program of the commonwealth club on curtailing suburban sprawl and our guests here are ted Drottboom of uh... association of Bay area government as well as many other places joint policy director <laughs> and Paul Campos, Vice President and General Counsel of the Northern California Home Builders Association, and I'm Laura Hall, an urban designer with Hall Aminana in San Francisco and also the director of the Smart Growth School. Um, in listening to you, Paul, I was thinking about um, urban planners, urban designers, new urbanists who are, um, as I am, involved in uh, what we're now calling sprawl repair, where we are looking at cities um, lots of them are just we know our cities in California based on taxes are over retailed so we have a lot of a lot of retail areas huge parking lots that would be prime candidates for this what we're calling sprawl repair infill housing uh, rec- um, cutting up blocks so that they're walkable again narrowing streets etc getting down to the 55 miles an hour for the, for the highways and um, Paul are you? Is there anything in SB 375 that is an incentive for home builders um, in terms of? Uh, I know we've heard about sequence incentives, et cetera. Are any of those going to help the home builders as they're repairing sprawl and making places more mixed use and walkable?
3: Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that, um, that will turn out to be the case. That's certainly the intention of, of several parts of the, of the bill. You mentioned one being CEQA reform, I think that uh, the most um, potentially significant element of CEQA reform in SB 375 deals with what during the negotiations of the bill came to be called the, the regional CEQA issues, and those are greenhouse gas emissions, uh, growth inducing impacts, and impacts on the regional tra- uh, transportation system. and. Just in brief, what SB 375 does is say that um, once a region adopts the sustainable community strategy that Ted described, uh, a residential project that is consistent with the density and intensity of use and location of the SCS... um, is entitled to rely on the CEQA reform provisions in 375, which are that the project does not have to do a greenhouse gas emissions analysis under CEQA, does not have to do a growth-inducing impact, and does not have to measure its impact on the regional transportation system. Um, the, the theory behind that reform being that those projects that are consistent with the SCS are precisely the types of projects... Um, that are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from business as usual, and as far as uh, growth inducing, um, they are the projects that we want to induce. And so there are some uh, potentially very significant uh, CEQA streamline reform measures um, that that hopefully will will carry out and be very significant. Um, the other other element of the bill I would mention is the the requirement now, which is new for the first time, that cities and counties uh, implement required zoning actions within a set period of time. Um, Under current law, uh, when a city or county gets what's called its regional housing needs allocation from uh, Ted and his colleagues at ABAG, um, they, uh, they... don't really have a deadline into which to accomplish the zonings. And so you will have many situations, like in, in I don't want to pick on Pleasanton, they're they are already under the gun of, of Jerry Brown's lawsuit, but more on that later. Um, but you have situations where a city will not accomplish its required rezonings until years into the next planning period. So they, they take seven or eight years and still don't do the rezonings. And zoning um, Really is is one of the key steps in the entitlement process in order to lock in a a certain density, um, to move the ball down uh, the field, if you will, in terms of entitlement to get past uh, initiative and referenda, Um, and so SB three hundred and seventy-five now for the first time uh, imposes a a timeline of three years with a potential for one year extension for cities to. uh, to complete all of the rezonings necessary to accommodate their housing needs for all income levels. And that's that's especially important in infill areas where uh, a lot of zoning codes are uh, antiquated, haven't been updated, and this gets to the the question about um, vacant strip malls or non-residential areas parking lots um, that need to be rezoned in order to accommodate housing. And so this, this timeline with a couple of new uh, potential penalty provisions in them uh, may be very helpful. Um, what we will run up against, all of us who are trying to really accomplish and effectuate this kind of infill development, especially in places you know, other than San Francisco, San Jose, and Oakland, which I think a lot of uh, City officials think are going to handle all the the Bay Area's housing needs for the foreseeable future, um, but there this article uh, just uh, came out yesterday in, in Palo Alto Online, and I'm going to I'm going to read from it where they they have some quotes from Palo Alto's planning commissioners. Um, uh, the story is prompted by Attorney General Brown's lawsuit against the city of Pleasanton, which I alluded to, um, where he is now sort of taking the the next logical step to his prior actions against suburban sprawl and filing lawsuits against general plans that sprawl, he is now going after jurisdictions that inhibit infill development and housing in general, um, by arguing that Pleasanton's absolute uh, housing unit cap violates state law. And, uh, so the, the gist of the story is, well, what, you know, what is Palo Alto and, and Menlo park think about that? Um, And and the the article goes on to say, um, in Palo Alto, Mountain View, Menlo Park, and other cities revising their long-term housing plans, planning officials aren't exactly rushing to meet the state's ambitious housing mandates. Some, in fact, argue that state guidelines for housing construction should essentially be ignored. Last week, when the Palo Alto Planning and Transportation Commission met to discuss the city's vision for housing, Commissioner Arthur Keller suggested that the city not base its growth plans on ABAG mandates. I think that in terms of our various priorities, meeting the ABAG housing requirement is the lowest priority, he said. Commissioner Lee Lippert, meanwhile, said he was concerned about the city's recent practice of allowing housing to be built at sites formerly occupied by neighborhood retailers. He also questioned the city's vision statement, which states that Palo Alto will, quote, aggressively pursue a variety of housing opportunities and enhance the character, diversity, and vitality of the city, end quote, and that the city is, quote, committed to increasing the development of affordable and market-rate housing, including converting non-residential lands to residential or mixed-use, end quote. Um, And the commissioner went on to call it a a dysfunctional Vision statement. So that gives you, and, and I'm not again not trying to pick on a particular city or a couple of planning commissioners, but this is not atypical of uh, jurisdictions in California. And again, to be fair, it's not atypical of what the constituents of these planning commissioners and elected officials want. So there's there's a real disconnect between what At the state level and the federal level, public policymakers are determining is necessary uh, action to be taken at the local level to address greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. There's a disconnect with what many citizens um, would view as acceptable or desirable public policy with respect to housing in their community. And so um, as we talk about sprawl repair, Um, we're going to have to face up and address um, these sort of backlashes that are bound to occur.
0: Um, Paul, I want to follow up on that. Just uh, in terms of backlash, um, I remember something um, someone told me a few years ago when I said I was an urban designer, and they said, you know, everything urban designers and planners have done in the past few decades after I got my house, everything else that you've done since then has, has decreased my quality of life. And we all know that to be true in sprawl because every new house contributes to more traffic. Um, in San Francisco, in a walkable neighborhood, more more uh, density means more cool shops to walk by and better transit times. But um, there is a reason for this backlash, and we all have to address that head on because in an era of post-suburban planning, we are not going to be successful unless we show clearly how we're going to create the places that people love again like we used to um, the attorney general um, is focusing a lot on the general plan and again i, I want to make this this statement everywhere I, I make it everywhere i go is that the general plan always says the right thing it mean it always says the right thing and it will continue It will start having greenhouse gases in there and the precious design guidelines that we all have in our cities are so sweet and beautiful those tend to be on a shelf. The operating system of growth is the zoning code, and that's the, prob- that's the problem we've had for five decades, and that's the area I feel that we really need to focus on when we move into... Uh, we need to regain our reputation as planners because we have been part of a disgraced profession for, for many decades uh, for what we've done, and uh, we're regaining a, a good reputation gradually by doing things that work for people on the ground. Um, I wanted to clarify, too, we threw out the term uh, CEQA. Uh, CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act, for those of you who don't know. Um, I want to talk about some of the indirect benefits um, that we might achieve if SB 375 is, is successful in moving forward, if we work out the kinks. What kind of benefits can we see from both of your perspectives, starting out with Ted? And then I'll add a few before we get to the questions from the audience.
2: Well, in fact, be positive, Ted. Mm -hmm. I am going to be positive. I'm going to be positive because we've been we have been talking about these benefits long before we started talking about about climate change, and and the benefits, you know, are about communities that work where people people find an environment that they can enjoy where they can where they can walk or bike. Uh, to the uses they, en- they enjoy where children can-, can-, can walk to school, where everybody can enjoy more exercise than, the- than they get in their present sort of spread environment. Um, we can talk as well about the potential to reduce the very significant amount of money we have to spend Uh, in this region and in this nation on transportation infrastructure. To the extent that we reduce the need for people to move around, we are reducing the need for very expensive public infrastructure investments. Um, This region just uh, approved a 25-year long-range transportation plan. It spends $216 billion dollars, over the next 25 years on the infrastructure transportation infrastructure in this region the regrettable part about that is that 80% of that plan is, is to maintain the existing infrastructure it is to patch potholes it is to replace buses and transit cars we simply do not have the money to invest in, in transportation and expansion And, in fact, only about 3% of that plan goes into roadway expansion. Uh, About 16% is transit expansion. But we don't have, you know, the gas tax is, is no longer fully funding the transportation trust fund at the federal level. We don't have those investments to the extent we can reduce the need to travel. We are in fact reducing the need for a very significant part of our of our public expenditures. And we and and I think probably most importantly, we can begin to revitalize communities that have been abandoned by many, many folks, left to those left only to those folks who are most vulnerable, uh, left to those folks that don't necessarily have the resources. To the extent that we can start to redevelop those places as communities that are welcoming for all classes and all incomes, we in fact have a better region and better places throughout the region. So those are some of the positive.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Ted. Benefits. I know infrastructure spe- um, spending and dollars and budget are, are going to be a, a big challenge for most of the rest of all of our lives. Um, but hopefully, SB 375 can reconcile some of that by pointing what is available to the best type of transportation infrastructure. Paul, um, why don't you address that question? Indirect benefits um, from the home builders' aso- uh, perspective uh, of SB 375 that we could hope for.
3: Well, <clears throat> I would um, I would echo what Ted suggested about being able to uh, revitalize existing communities that from a location perspective here, especially in the inner ring of the Bay Area, are are wonderful areas and have wonderful potential um, to be great communities for um, the entire gamut of, of folks in the Bay Area. Um, I think that there are areas that are ripe for the kind of of redevelopment and reinvestment that 375 contemplates. Um, so that that is, and, you know, in terms of indirect benefits, if if that's successful and you're um, able to attract the people who fled before, um, middle and upper middle class folks with money, um, they're going to demand better schools. They're going to use their political clout, hopefully, to get them and hopefully raise The the standards for everyone in the community, Um, you know that that's on the positive side. But then you run into the question of displacement and gentrification, and there are very um, uh, strong voices that are very concerned about that. And so they're almost two sides of the same coin, where you look at well reinvestment and bringing people back to the community. well, where what's, what happens to the people in the existing buildings and, and, and houses, and do they get priced out, and um, do we adopt a, a, an inclusionary zoning policy that says that any new development has to set aside 20 or 30 percent of the units at a below market rate for existing residents? Well, then you get to what I talked about before, which is a reset of the economics, where that's I don't think that's going to be feasible anymore. Or if it is, it means that you're not going to be able to impose the park fee or the open space fee or uh, the other community amenities. We're going to have to be more selective in terms of what exactions you place on new development that's going into um, in, these, in these urban areas um, because there are going to be these conflicts of, of, and ideas of displacement coming right along with, um, with reinvestment. Um, so I think that those are, you know, that, again, is, from an indirect standpoint, hopefully one of the things that r- focusing the the limited new, quote-unquote, transportation investments um, and, and attracting private capital once it becomes available again um, to these areas that, from again, from a location standpoint and from a historical standpoint, we're very vibrant and, and wonderful communities here in the bay area um,
0: you know paul one of the things that you bring up this 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 issue of replacement replacement i think we all need to be really awake over the next decade watching what happens um, as as we all know the people who could afford to in the past few decades have moved out of the cities and left uh, a lot of the poor in the inner cores uh, i just talked to a woman today from oakland who um, said that in her neighborhood, which was about 90% renters, is now affordable to the younger generation who, for to buy the houses there. They're displacing the renters. So will the really poor now move out to the abandoned subdivisions where the, the automobile costs are higher, infrastructure, everything is more expensive at a distance, um, but the housing costs is, uh, are maybe a lot lower um, this flip is going to be really interesting, or what I predict to be a, a flip in the, in the coming decade. Um, I want to just add a couple things that I think will be indirect benefits if we're able to really pull this off as a state, actually as a nation. It's a nationwide problem. A lot of it does come down to economics and um, just spending less money. I'm repeating what, what the panelists already said, spending less, less money on transportation and cars, etc. Um, The other things that I think will be really important um, is this idea of strengthening community ties because in an era of economic decline, those are the things that can really help us um, survive this era. And community ties have a really hard time happening when you're in a car. You tend to dislike, dislike anyone in a car next to you, right? Now, when you're on foot... I get home late at night from a train. I like to see lots of people on foot. I, humans are really um, welcome in that regard. And um, community ties form from informal relationships. If you, if, that's something, if you can just remember from this point on, they don't actually form from formal. They, they form from running into people a lot of times informally, sort of the water cooler or the plaza or the corner market. And so, if we are able to design places that are not just monoculture density, but actually real, diverse, traditional, historic type walkable neighborhoods, we can strengthen those ties and solve a lot of problems together that way with more civic engagement, et cetera. The last thing, and this is my very high hope before we go out to the uh, questions to the audience, is this idea of a reconciliation. This builds off of uh, a lot of what Paul was talking about, the battle we've had about building the human habitat over the last three or four decades. When people have just, you know, gotten to their camps and they said, stop, enough, and we're going to battle this out, And um, this idea of reconciliation between environmentalism and urbanism, the human habitat and the natural habitat, how they should both, the best design, the best preservation of both of them should be our highest priority, and how they connect together. And so we stop battling. So the decades ahead, we we stop that battle. That's one of my goals in life, to see that before, before I'm gone, this reconciliation between environmentalism and urbanism. Um, okay, so now we are going to ask, let you ask some questions yourself. And there is a microphone, um, and please speak into it. Over there, sir. <clears throat> oh. We are being recorded, and let me just pause one more time to say that, uh, remind our listening audience that you're listening to a program of the Commonwealth Club on curtailing suburban sprawl. Uh, now questions from our audience.
3: Hi, thank you. Um, I had a question for all three of you, really. I'm interested. A lot of you talked about these uh, what are very ambitious and fantastic plans, and I'm assuming that a big part of these plans is increasing the availability of public transportation. And I'd be curious for the three of you to touch on what are some strategies that you may have that maybe a lot of us are familiar with or perhaps a lot of us are not familiar with for increasing the available funds for public transportation, be it through taxes, be it through systems that perhaps uh, cities like London have uh, implemented, charging into the city, Whatever it may be, I'm really interested to receive some insight on what are some possible strategies for that, A, and, B, what is the realistic political will locally and statewide for those strategies?
0: Okay. Ted, drop, boom, I'm going to ask you okay. to start us off. How do we actually pay for these infrastructure improvements that we well, all love the, to see? The
2: first, the first thing that you need to understand about, about public transit is that public transit begins to work economically when you have densities to support transit ridership. Uh, so to the extent extent that you can get the densities that, that fill the buses, fill the trains d- through all periods of the day, you have reduced what some people refer to as the operating deficit of the transit system. So that's why this, this focused growth, this smart growth, is so vitally important for, for getting transit to work. There are, as you, as you probably know... There are ded- dedicated funds, uh, both at the federal level and at the state at the state level, to support the inevitable operating deficit of transit. The state has uh, has, ef- has effectively taken away those funds for other purposes. Although there is a court decision uh, just uh, last week, which uh, makes it impossible for them to do that, but. The result of that is, in fact, that we just simply increase the state deficit. Uh, eventually, we're go- if, if we want a good transit system, it's going to have to be paid for by some sort of tax or fee. We've talked about the raising the federal gas tax. There doesn't seem to be much appetite for that for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, we have There has been some discussion in this region about so-called congestion fees and increased tolls or new tolls feeding the transportation system. San Francisco proposed such a fee. Uh, uh, a fee was proposed as one way of paying for the Doyle Drive improvement. There tends to be not a heck of a lot of po- political or public appetite for that. One of the things we're going to have to do is is begin to realize that the era of the free lunch is over, and if we want these services, we're going to have to pay for them.
0: And I'll jump in before we go to Paul and say that one of the important things for us as planners to do is to create rules and codes for, cities, for municipalities that Um, um, create dense enough, mixed-use enough, diverse enough neighborhoods to support transit in a way that they can understand and see themselves in that and that it improves their quality of life. These need to be visual, graphic, Clear, easy to understand by the average person, and then we're going to change the consciousness so that people can then think, okay, maybe it's worth paying for. Why would anyone want to do it now? You go to a city, and the the codes are, are you know, there are twenty of them. You don't under, most of us don't even understand them. So um, we really need zoning reform to help this the consciousness go along. Paul Campos, do you want to add anything to that?
3: Um, <clears throat> I think that. It- it's ironic, but in many ways, California is far behind the rest of the world in the things that you're talking about, like in London and and public-private partnerships where large infrastructure projects are funded with private investment capital and then recouped through user fees or things like that. And I think given the current and projected fiscal situation in California, that's – Really, the only direction that's going to be the only source of funds um, for expansion of whatever kind of transportation um, network you're talking about um, is is a public-private partnership with combined with you know a return on the private investment, which is going to come from user fees. And so I think you know Ted is right. There's there, there's no longer going to be sort of the public good. Mentality of uh, whether it be driving on a city street or um, you know using a muni or whatever, um, there's going to be much more of a focus on direct payment by the user of that service, Um, and and just that's the fiscal reality. I think.
4: Thank you, Paul. We have another question in the back. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you for addressing this issue. Um, I wanted to also inquire about including noise pollution in the discussion and um, how that relates with these higher-density communities. Noise pollution. Hmm. Hmm.
3: (laughs) Well, I'll I'll take a stab at that.
4: Okay.
0: I'd like to actually first hear what your experience is in that that would make you ask that question.
4: I just uh, had recently bought a home, and one of my requirements was to have a very quiet community. Mm -hmm. And I know living in a higher-density area, which is where I was originally, um, it it really affects the psychology behind people. Mm -hmm. I know we all know that instinctively. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, we hear the BART there, we want to be close to, you know, all this transportation, but the fact is it makes a lot of noise, and... Uh, how do you find that, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm into, you know, the, that whole Zen thing. But we all need that. You know, that's I think part I'll, of our health. I'll jump in just
0: briefly before you do, Paul. And just from an urban design standpoint, um, a really healthy neighborhood has a diversity of housing. I keep mentioning that. But from the very dense to the single-family home. This isn't about getting away from the single-family home. But they all should be designed as they have been in Europe And historic cities uh, in the center cities in our country, where it's about a quarter mile to half a mile from the edge, where it's quiet, to the center where you get transit and services. That's that's ideally how we should be designing all new development in increments of the neighborhood, and it's a quarter mile. It's about 120 acres, and this. What it means is that there is housing for all. There are situations where when you're young, you might want to be downtown where there's neon lights and there's noise, um, and it's cheaper. As you get older, you have uh, children. You move into a single small, single-family house. Maybe you make a lot of money, and you want to get out towards the edge of the neighborhood. but. Um, the, the whole package should still be there. This shouldn't be about everybody having to suffer for the environment, suffer for their art or whatever, that we all have to live with noise. There should be choice. Okay, now to the actual home builder, Paul Campos.
3: Well, a couple of things. I think your, your question raises a very important, larger point, and that's about different people have different preferences. And um, I think sometimes... It, here in the Bay Area, we um, forget that and sort of believe or or talk among like minded people who have self selected to live in San Francisco and don 't mind noise kind of don 't either don't don 't really take into account that there are a lot of people that for for whom quiet and seclusion is is their primary driver of where they want to live and uh, I was just part of a, of a study that um, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission did on public attitudes um, to transit-oriented development. And it was a very well-done study, and um, I think they're going to be releasing the results soon. But um, the, what I really appreciated it about their effort was they were honest, and they let the chips fall while they may, and they concluded that there are some people – in the bay area that do not want to live in tod and would be almost impossible to convince them to live in a tod and that's transit
0: oriented development
3: (laughs) development. and that's fine but there are also a lot of potentials who currently don't live in tod and we can make a lot of progress by making transit-oriented development and communities better to attract them but not. I think where we get in trouble is if we believe that everyone is a candidate and everyone wants to live this certain way um, when that's not necessarily the case. Um, I do hope, though, that with technology and soundproofing, that at some point we will be able to have uh, communities in existing cities where you'll be able to tune out you know, through insulation or, or whatever um, the outside noise, and you'll be able to pretend that you're hearing crickets in in your backyard. Um, so that that if that's the one thing keeping you from living in a city and a higher density TOD, um, then maybe we can we can solve that problem for you. Um, for another person, that might not be enough. They might want a full backyard and be able to. You know, have that type of life, but again, there there are enough out there, and there's enough work to be done um, that we can, I think, be honest about the fact that not everyone wants this, no matter how well we design a community. Um, but there are enough potential converts out there to make a big difference,
0: and it's a huge underbuilt market. Um, We we are overbuilt in single-family homes for, I don't know, maybe a decade worth. There's the the supply from some sources say that, and we're underbuilt for this other part of the the economy and our uh, society that wants that. Um, But I again want to stress that we we have to be really careful about thinking that all of this is about noisy, high-density housing um, because the best type of housing... um, best type of neighborhoods, go from more dense to less dense, and then a whole new neighborhood starts. There's a whole literature about that. There's something called the transect. Um, If you go online, transect.org, it talks about, it's T-R-A-N-S-E-C-T.org. It talks about a slice through the human habitat that goes from very rural to very urban, that you actually need that balance um, for a healthy community environment. So good question. We have time for one more question, then Tiffany will wrap it up. Yes, sir. Where is the microphone? There we go. Okay.
5: Uh, Yes. I'm old enough to have the fortune or misfortune to live in Los Angeles for 25 years before I moved up to here.
0: Can you turn the microphone this way, like a rock star? (laughs) This way. Oh, it's on. it's, on. it's on. But this way. Just
2: towards your mouth. Oh, this way? This way? Okay. That's How better.
5: Doing? Okay. I had the fortune and misfortune to live in Los Angeles for about oh, 30 years before I moved up to Los San Francisco, and uh, what a smart move I made. So SB 375 is long overdue. If you looked at what happened to Los Angeles, it's, uh, I think, kind of what I consider a lost cause because the sprawl was just phenomenal down there. <clears throat> And if you were to fly in there and land at night, you can see lights from one end of the valley at one end of the basin to the other, all the way out to San Bernardino. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I think um, planned communities are very good, and I think transit-oriented development, I think, is excellent. And I think we make some mistakes by building freeways, and, of course, we are auto-oriented. And what we do is we accommodate issues and, and instead, of, uh, instead of coming up with a solution to the issue. Accommodating an issue is uh, to build freeways and enlarge them to accommodate rush-out traffic. Now, that's not what we want to do if we want to cut down on greenhouse gases because there has to be disincentives, I think, to driving, and we haven't gotten to that point yet. And I think that's where planned communities do come in mm-hmm. and better transit comes in.
0: Maybe the economy will lead to this too. I would hope so. <laughs> and remember, freeways, when they go into a city, they should be boulevards. And when they leave the city, they can be freeways. San Francisco is getting good, very good at turning, making lots of boulevards now out of freeways. I'm, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate do, your I'm, coming.
5: One, one oh, I, sure. I do when I'm – I should say when I moved up here, I was fortunate enough to end up in Marin County, which has had a growth plan since 1973.
0: Thank yes, it you. has. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, we have – One more comment here.
5: Uh, For Paul, my
3: question is whether you members really care where they build so long as they meet their financial uh, goals. And if you could address the relative costs and profitability of, say, developing a greenfield in Sonoma somewhere versus developing a a parking lot, um, which is more costly, which is more profitable? And and do your members really care uh, where they build as long as they, they make a good return? Um, yes, they do care um, and many of our members um, in fact most now do both edge development and infill development and Unfortunately, right now, none of it is profitable um, and uh, you know i 'm not being facetious um, it, it it's very unclear to me in five to six years what the development industry in the Bay Area is going to look like in terms of who's going to be left standing. It's its that bad. But if you were to go back and ask me that question five or six years ago, I would say that um, generally it's a little easier to do suburban development in the Bay Area. Um, it's not easy. Um, if you look at a a large master, the last real big master plan community out in the in the suburbs, was probably Doherty Valley. And that took about 20 years to entitle. Um, North Livermore never made it um, after 30 years of trying. Um, so it, it's not easy, but it's easier, and it's probably less... Ex- it was less expensive, um, even though you had to start from scratch in terms of providing sewer and roads, etc. Um, one of the things that I've been very pleased about over the last decade or when i first started at the home builders association um, proponents of infill development um, believed what what that there was what i call um, a, a mythical infill city where developers were just stupid enough to not have found it it was a place where there was beautiful schools with lots of capacity and sewer lines and water and all of this infrastructure that was just waiting to be taken advantage of um, at very low cost and that development was waiting with open arms uh, and that it was cheaper to do and cheaper to build. Um, that's no longer the case. I think there's been a, a sobering r- realization and a maturation and, and recognition that infill development is hard. It's harder than suburban development. Uh, often costs more. Uh, you have tremendous issues with having to upgrade infrastructure. Um, financing is difficult. Um, just just to show you all of the things in play. Uh, you know, right now, the, one of the biggest impediments to um, new infill high-rise development in the Bay Area, assuming that there were a market for it, are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's pre-sale requirements which have been increased anywhere from 50 to 71%. So in other words, you can't get a loan to be insured by these agencies um, for construction unless you pre-sell 70% of the units in some cases which is impossible. And so you know, that directly impacts the viability of the kind of development that we're trying to stimulate with 375. Um, So a long way of saying that um, they don't, the builders, they, as long as there's, it makes economic sense, they will build wherever. Um, They prefer not to get beaten up as, you know, sprawlers. So they, you know, they want to be liked. And so they, they want to do what society is telling them in terms of building uh, in Oakland and San Jose and San Francisco. But it, it is. I have to tell you, it's very frustrating for them because they, when they do do it, they still get beat up, and they still face massive hurdles. And they kind of look around and say, but this is what everyone's telling us that they want, and they're making it impossible for us.
2: Just to, to add on Ted. to that, I mean, uh, Paul's members, members have a preference because of the, all the reasons Paul has listed for greenfield development. Localities also have that preference, and it has to, has to do with the fact that when somebody comes from Paul's industry and says, I want to develop a greenfield, the locality is basically able to charge all the infrastructure costs of developing that greenfield to that developer. When somebody comes in and develops a vacant gas station site in central Oakland, the city of Oakland's not able to charge the cost of replacing those wooden sewers with something new. And that's a big impediment to infill, is the capacity of local government to recoup the cost of providing the infrastructure necessary to even the playing field between greenfield and infill.
0: And I think um, it's a really good good point that you've both made and that I think that one of the goals of SB 375 is to make the good easier and incentivized so that it can be done in a way that is supported by the community. And again, I continue to talk about that operating system of the zoning code. Um, it's the new smart growth zoning codes, the smart codes, etc., that create the kind of development that is walkable and transit friendly. But it also incentivizes developers to do it. So um, it, it always needs to be. It shouldn't be. Someone has to do it because it's it's the moral or the right thing to do, or they have to suffer to do it. It should meet everybody's interests in, in a really healthy way to move forward. And we're hoping that SB three seventy five is the beginning of that. I'm going to turn it back now to Tiffany.
1: Thank you. Let's all say thank you to all three of our panelists. And I think each one of you noticed there was a green sheet of paper that was sitting on each one of your chairs as you walked in. We just ask that every one of you fill it out and we've got a drop box as you exit the the door as well. So again, thank you to all three of our panelists for their insightful remarks and for doing the work that you do. We really appreciate it. We also thank our audience here as well as our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 106th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.